It's February 4th, 2021, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Well, welcome once again, fellow architecture geeks. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast. We hope all of you are doing really, really well. We've been having what I, I would think is the most amazing weather in a February this last week because it's been like in the 60s and 70s and sunny and it's it's almost like spring. So there's been all these really great opportunities to just sort of wander around the neighborhood and see what everyone is up to again, which apparently is nothing. <laughs> after after Thanksgiving Hall- after Halloween, Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's you know, you walk around the neighborhood and everything's been decorated and there's nothing really going on. It's like we need another holiday to come up just so that people are decorating their yards again. So there's something kind of fun to look at. Now, we, we, we did see a combo Valentine's Day Easter decoration at one house, which we weren't really sure what that was about because it seemed a bit odd. But but I guess it's that concept concept of, you know, two birds, one stone, maybe. I don't know. I mean, that's that's at least that's what's going on in our neighborhood. So what's life like on on your side of the world so to speak i know you've been doing a lot of stuff with your drone lately because well of course you the weather's been great for it but but what's going on over over with you yeah so i I have been taking advantage of the nice weather to go outside and take some fun drone pictures both of the historic preservation projects i've been working on that's starting to wrap up and it's starting to look really really good i so I, i i had to take advantage of that plus we're doing some documentation photos for the Texas Historical Commission. So the the drone actually came in handy for a little bit of office paperwork. Um, and, and then I've been also flying it around my neighborhood. When I'm flying it around the house, it's funny because my dogs will just go nuts chasing it back and forth across the yard. And so it's, it's entertainment for everyone, really. But what has been really neat for me is, is getting pictures – of my historic preservation projects and then putting them through a software that processes them and then turns them into a point cloud and then a 3d model that I can then edit, take into a a rendering program or, or even just use it for documentation purposes. It's a really cool piece of technology that has really come a long way in a, in a short amount of time. And that integration of, tech software in architecture is what we really wanted to talk about on this week's podcast at at least in a roundabout kind of way as a profession we we have so much technology that has become available to us when talking about design from your basic cad programs to 3d modeling software and and rendering software that's become so good you can just plop your building onto the future site regardless of what's around it and and it just it turns out really really well so we have this slew of options anytime we sit down to start a project however there's a point where you have to stop and ask yourself are we focusing too much on software and not enough on design are we at the point where we're allowing software to dictate design instead of the instead of the architect or client. And finally, as architects and future architects are are, are losing critical thinking and 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 learning less because the software can do that for us. I I think I think Larry's got a pretty good spiel on that. But 
yeah, I think I think this is really one of those thing, things for me. And and we want to start off with really the question of are we focusing too much on software and, and not enough on design? And this is one of those things that oddly enough, I, I don't I wouldn't normally think about this question twice. I mean, any of this, any of what we're talking about on any given day, I typically wouldn't think about twice because we have become as architects, we've become so accustomed to going into the office and firing up our laptop and starting a CAD program or some sort of architecture software program, because this is just how offices operate. This is, this is typical for us. This isn't anything. It, it, it's, I guess, the equivalent of, you know, in the old days, <laughs> the old days, when you would go in and get out your sketch or get out your, your vellum or whatever, and your, your slide rule, not slide rule, your, um, she was it called, uh, well, your T-square or your, or your bar anyway. Wow, I can't believe I can't remember that. It's been so long. But last November, I sat in on a talk with an architect panel as part of a student conference. And half of our time was really spent talking about just how much software the students were having to learn at school. And we're talking not not like, you know, your Microsoft Word and that sort of stuff, but actual architecture software. And at the same time, what the firms were expecting of them when they came out of school and started working, what what were they expected to know? And, and the biggest, the two biggest issues that really came out of this seemed to be the students' ability to really learn these programs versus learning them well. Because there's there are so many pieces they're trying to focus on and they can do all of them, but not necessarily one thing better than the other. And then there was this overwhelming sense that they were simply having to learn too much software. But if you look at the industry, it's that same thing that's happening. And, and you'll look at the, the job requirements of many of these offices, and many of the architecture offices that are looking to hire people. So you have these firms that are looking to hire people who know not just a single program, but know entire suites of programs, rather than hiring people who can perhaps learn on the job or think critically. And, and every office these days has their software guy. And it's either... Someone they've hired intentionally to handle the software, or it's it's the younger architect, younger intern who just happens to that position by default. And their sole purpose is to really troubleshoot all of the issues that come up with these programs, or in some cases, actually teach programs to the ones who don't know. One student piped up during the conference about how he had applied for this summer internship and not paying attention to the, necessarily the questions they were asking him because it, they were asking him about his software knowledge. And it turned out that he spent his entire summer internship teaching Revit to that office because no one there had ever used it before and they wanted to get on Revit. So what a great opportunity. We're going to hire the summer intern and he's going to teach us how to do this. And I will guarantee you he's going to pay a lot more attention during future interviews when they start asking him about <laughs> asking him about his software skills. In addition to that, you also have the people that we think of as the CAD monkeys. And they are, in reality, what the pen and pencil set would have called draftsmen. Part of me wants to ask the question, are the students who are entering the, entering the profession really taking on that role? And sometimes solely because they know the programs, you know, whether there's the summer intern or full-time employees. During my very brief stint at a commercial firm, there were four or five guys in the office who did nothing, and I mean nothing, but create all of the 3D models and the presentation renderings. This is their job, and that's all they did all day, every day, 
day in and day out because they knew the rendering and modeling software. So therefore, that's what they did. And I, I think that's, in some ways, that's good. But at the same time, is that really what we want future architects to be paying attention to? Yeah, by by focusing so much attention on learning software and, and using software in design classes, I tend to feel like it's taking away from learning the process of design. The, the software is a tool to help us communicate our ideas. So it shouldn't matter what programs we use to communicate those ideas, as long as the ideas are expressed cleanly and clearly so that others can read and understand those ideas. Because at the end of the day, the ultimate goal of a set of drawings is to communicate how to construct a building. And primary to that goal is critical thinking and good communication, which brings us to our second question about architecture and technology. Are architects and future architects losing critical thinking and perhaps learning less because the software can do that for us? You know, a thousand years ago when, when architects still used ink and, and mylar, did architects spend more time working out a, a detail or a plan before committing it to paper, or, or in this case, mylar? If for no other reason, then you couldn't erase and redraw over and over. At some point, the medium was too damaged to do that. So did architects make a greater effort to think through what they were designing and drawing that's that's kind of where i was going with critical thinking and i think that's really a fair question because when it comes to drawing today i mean you can it's really easy to just take and do some really quick rough sketching and then just throw it into whatever software you happen to be using at the time whether that's cad or revit or some other program and then from there you can really start changing what you've drawn because it's it's easier to do i mean it's Instead of erasing with a with an electric eraser and worrying that you're damaging your your uh, medium, you're actually just changing things with a few commands and mouse clicks. And the best part, of course, is that if you erase something you're not supposed to, you just undo it, and everything comes back to you. So it's so it becomes so easy. It's it's become so easy to do these multiple iterations of something and make minor changes. But but the thing for me is is wondering would that be the case? If we were still doing all of this by hand, would we be so eager to hop from a rough sketch into a program? Would there be that issue? I mean, would as architects, would we be a little more analytical about what we're doing? And a, and a prime example of this for me is the this idea about building sections and wall sections. As architects, we need to understand how things go together and for no other reason for constructability purposes. However, there's also this need to sort of grasp how that might impact the design of the building. But you have programs like Revit that can cut those sections for us. So maybe we're thinking less about how elements come together and what that means in the overall building design and construction because, because we, aren't, we aren't drawing this by hand, so we aren't doing as much thinking about it because we're letting the the programs do that for us. And I don't, and you know, from my perspective, I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing. Now on, on the flip side of that though, there is the advantage of having building sections, elevations, and complex roof plans drawn with a few mouse clicks. One of my favorite examples of Revit actually being useful is 
in 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 the instant roof creation was in a residential project that we had in the office a while back. We had all the walls located in and drawn in the project in Revit, but we couldn't quite get the the roof to just kind of gel together. So we gave the Revit roof creation tool try, plugged in the slope we wanted to use, and said go. And the software gave us a roof that was accurate and, and useful in the design as we moved forward documenting the existing building. Well, and that's one of those things that I think is is really cool because I've I have worked on enough buildings where trying to figure out the roof has been like doing origami. You're just all the slopes coming together and you're thinking, okay, how do we actually make everything connect? And and I think it's stuff like that 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 makes the 3D software like Revit really incredibly popular because you can quickly and seamlessly produce the 3D model and you can produce the construction drawings. It all sort of happens at the same time. So you know, at one point or another, we've all been stumped by something like a roof, and and now here it is. We have something. We have this piece of software that can kind of help us work through those issues. However, because Revit has become an industry standard and has does have many limitations, we are starting to see more and more buildings that were designed to sort of minimize the problems we might encounter in Revit, rather than buildings that respond well to the program and site given. And and I know you guys. You personally, you've run into this with the Revit software because you've had projects where it it was like sort of that square peg into a round hole. Yeah, we had a, a townhome project situated on a, a really sloped site with non-orthogonal setbacks. And because Revit works best on completely flat sites with orthogonal property lines and setbacks, we spent a good chunk of our time just battling Revit to step these townhomes down this sloped site because we were trying to get our design to work with the software. Had we not already worked out the design prior to importing it into Revit, I can see where project time constraints and our own aggravation of fighting with the software might have dictated a different design, something that might have been more Revit friendly. And and I think this has popped up in more increasingly more and more uh, as Revit becomes more popular. You will you can drive down the street and say, "Oh, that was a Revit building." Oh, there's another Revit building there. J- just based on my familiarity with the program and and what it does, good or bad, you can say, "Oh, yeah, that." Yeah, I can see <laughs> it, it, it's 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 interesting to watch. <laughs> and at the same time. You know, so so we're talking a lot about Revit because it's it's such a widely used program, but there are other programs out there that do give you the opportunity to that are are less orthogonal, I guess uh, would, would be the really real way to describe it. And it gives you the opportunity to to create what are some really new cool shapes. And then of course, you've created that shape. Now you're gonna have to figure out how to build it. So on the one hand, we have the software which can help us push the boundaries of what's possible, but we have to start asking ourselves at what cost. You hit the point where the rubber's going to meet the road, and those added creative opportunities can come up against what's really buildable in terms of cost and constructability, which really begs what is our question of, is 3D software starting to dictate building design and shape solely 
for the reason that it can. And are we at a point where we're allowing software to do that? And one of the best examples of, in my mind of this really, and probably the earliest and most famous, would have to be Frank Gehry's collaboration between architect and software. This idea of this proprietary software that his office developed, um, one of the one of the buildings that that pops out about all this is the, the Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles, and of course, then there's the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. You have the software that's helped him really create these unique forms. But to understand the impact that this has had, really, you you have to almost go back to a lot of his earlier works, whether it's his own house edition in 1978 the Ronald Davis Studio, the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium, or possibly even the binocular building on Venice Beach. You know, these were still fairly conventional buildings that really had mostly straight lines, which is when you think of Gary, that's not what you think about. Yeah, the the, the early projects were a cubist painting kind of weird, if, if you can imagine that. But we're still something that you, I feel like, could be drawn by hand. And it was only in the mid-1990s that the curvy metal and glass structures that Gary is known for really became viable. And it was thanks to the software the military used to design fighter jets. Gary appropriated the technology and then imported 3D scans of his paper and cardboard models into the computer to produce accurate drawings of the curved metal panels for which he's known for today. But the important factor to consider here is that the technology and the software only enhance the existing idea that Gary was kicking around in his head. Without that initial starting point, the software doesn't mean anything. And the early work that that Gary did on the Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles and the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao really paved the way for other architects using similar techniques, such as Zaha Hadid. I mean, you can just look at any of her buildings. And Herzog and Demuron, I'm thinking the bird's nest from the 2008 Olympics hosted by China. Gary's experience demonstrated very early on the successes that you can have designing with groundbreaking technology and software. And then it has taken a life of its own as, as other people have expanded on that. Which is great in its own way, but, but this is where, this is one of those things where I sort of run into this issue with, with utilizing that type of software so much. For me, I feel like, I feel like Gary has gotten sort of stuck within his own software, that what we see when we see something from Gary, we see these, it feels like a, another iteration of basically the same concept. It's just for different clients or different types of buildings. And for some of these structures, there's also that sensation that just because the software says you can do this, maybe doesn't mean that's the smartest thing to do. And what pops to mind when I say that is the hit that Gary took on the building he did for MIT over water issues. And if you look at the building itself, I mean, it really does. The building really looks amazing because it's this very wavy, almost kind of towery form. But then you look at how the windows were detailed to it and how the windows relate to it. And suddenly you can understand where water might be an issue and maybe doing this type of building didn't make a lot of sense, especially in a city like Boston, where you're going to get snow. 
And if you look at the windows and you think, yeah, snow sitting on that maybe not may not be the best idea if you were concerned about maybe water issues. And and don't get me wrong, I mean there there are all of those great examples of collaboration between the software and designers. And, and again, the Herzog and Demeron, the Hadid stuff are all great examples of that. But we should be cautious of signing over the design of our buildings 100% to the tools that we have at our disposal. Even Gary's designs started out as scraps of paper and cardboard and glass that was thrown together as a physical model before he ever got the computer involved. And one of my discussions with one of the students from, from the conference was that even though they are learning the software, they are still being taught to you know, sketch by hand and to do, do the things that, that are going to help them learn about design and about how things come together, as well as the software, you know, usually starting with hand sketching a conceptual design and then maybe pulling it into the software. So there is a potential for that to still happen and for them to still learn both ways. But I think, I think there is a, a danger in some, some ways of becoming too reliant on the software. And, and like I said with Gary, sort of becoming stuck inside of it and, and maybe losing something in the process. Yeah. And I think we can both agree that design ultimately shouldn't be dictated by the strengths and or limitations of the software we're using. Design should be a collaborative effort between architect and client with consideration given to all aspects that impact the final design, including site conditions and, and other regulations. And and I think I think we generally still do that. I, I think as architects, we still try to keep those things in balance. But but there is that question, you know, how much is technology and software really impacting what we do as architects and and uh, and and probably with the pandemic as well because we are having to work differently and we're having to communicate differently and we're having to run our offices differently that technology is going to have yet another impact on on what we do and and in a few years time once everything kind of calms down it'll be interesting to see where we are with all of that so that's a lot to unpack <laughs> i hope we've Given you guys some interesting, interesting questions to to ponder there, and and hopefully you have some experiences you can share. As always, you can reach me Larry at Spotted Dog Architecture, or on um, Twitter or Instagram at Spotted Dog Arch, and of course Matthew is always available at his his social media and his emails, which are yes. So you can find us on instagram at arch geeks podcast you can email us at architecturegeeks 100 at gmail.com and you can always find me at arch geek math with underscores between the arch and the geek and the geek and the mat well awesome well we hope you guys are all doing well and hopefully um staying warm i'm i'm not looking forward to next week getting cold again but i i like to think that spring is just around the corner and oh and and you be sure to join us next time because we are doing our our next episode of the international series and we are going to have a special guest join us from london so be sure to tune into that uh, we are really really looking forward to doing it and hopefully you're going to look forward to hearing the podcast. So it'll probably be a little bit longer than our typical podcast, but 
you'll just have to hang in there with us and enjoy it. So we will talk to you next time. Have yourselves a great uh, weekend and a great week, and we'll talk later. Bye. Bye.